Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Has Russia really upped its game against Ukraine? A new report says a change of tactics could prove to be their turning point. But on a trip to Kyiv, the Defence Secretary says Britain's storm shadow missiles could scupper that. We supplied it because of Russia's constant use of its long-range weapons to target civilians and civilian critical national infrastructure against all international law and the Geneva Conventions. Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark will be here to make sense of it all. Meanwhile, high-tech satellites show Russia's military build-up on the borders. But what does that actually tell us? We've been looking at the defences along the entire front lines, all the way down through Luhansk and the Donetsk Oblast into Zaporizhia. And what's it really like being ejected from a plane at hundreds of miles per hour? This man certainly knows. With the aircraft burning around us, there was a dawning realisation that this jet could explode within a nanosecond. And we said, right, let, we've got to get out, eject, eject, eject. Mike, hi. Uh, many different angles on the war in Ukraine and the Russian position this week, from reports of an improvement in Russian battlefield tactics to suggestions that the struggles to enforce discipline amongst the ranks are getting worse. How do you see it? Uh, yes, I think both of those things are probably true. Uh, there are many old maxims that come to mind. You know, One is that armies always learn. Um, and they learn tactics through battlefield losses and failures. Uh, people are not stupid. They actually think about how to do it better. And so you'd expect the Russian army after a, a year to learn. But against that, another old maxim is that you can't change the culture of an army overnight. And if the culture is one in which there isn't much connection between NCOs and the private soldiers, and if a, an army's using a lot of privatised troops, military companies like Wagner and so on, then that's a, a big problem. And then the other issue is, of course, you can plan for all, the, all you like, but um, you know, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Or as the boxer Mike Tyson famously said, everyone has a plan to get punched in the mouth. Hmm. Now, now, we know that Russia's military plan to take Ukraine has failed in many ways. If it hadn't, Ukraine would not still control 80% of its territory. But it's still far from game over. Moscow's forces should not be written off. A new study from the Royal United Services Institute suggests Moscow has learned from its mistakes and is doing things differently as it prepares for a major Ukrainian counteroffensive. Mike, just what you were saying. Um, can you just give us an overview of what that report tells us? Yes, well, it's dealing with uh, the idea of they've learned to keep some of their material in the rear areas so they don't get hit by HIMAR uh, missiles, for instance, which have got a 50-mile range, more or less, the ones that the Ukrainians have been given. So they're not bringing stuff forward as much. They're holding it back. They've improved their logistics a certain amount. And they've learned, as it were, to put screening forces in the front line. So they've got some of their conscripts, and in the case of Wagner, their convicts uh, in the front line. And they're holding their better units back so that they the better units are expected to come in in the second stage of the battle. And they're also um, using their armour in a, in a more combined way. But again, there's a big culture change required in that. And although they are, they're certainly learning how to avoid some of the mistakes, the very strange mistakes they made in the first few months in the use of armour, really basic stuff, they're not now making those mistakes. But whether they can put together something closer to a combined arms operation, which is what they know they have to do, 
is really a, a, a big question. And I suspect that they won't be able to do that, although we will see a better performance when they go into battle against the Ukrainian offensive as and when it starts, which will be quite soon now. And when they're putting more inexperienced soldiers or conscripts forward um, ahead of the more trained troops, is the idea simply to, to flush out the Ukrainian positions and to use up uh, weaponry? Exactly. It's to, it's to make the Ukrainians show their hands, show what they've got. And then if they can target that with artillery, then they can degrade uh, Ukrainian um, lines, or if not the front line, the, the line behind that. So the Ukrainians will have to be um, even more agile in reacting to these early attacks that can be anticipated once the Russians, as as they will, will launch counter-offensives. And what evidence is there that Russia has restructured its forces and it's making a difference? Yes, it has, but they, they, they've they tried to reorganize their, uh, their basic uh, units and they've got the units in a more um, sensible arrangement now, but they still, have this main problem that the units are all quite independent the way they operate. They they have to draw more or less their own logistical lines. They have to compete with each other. I mean, units always do in armies. They compete for logistics, but they have to compete in a in a pretty brutal situation in Russia's case. And what is your best assessment of when the Ukrainian counteroffensive will begin? Very soon. Uh, I don't think they can leave it much longer. The weather is now favourable. Uh, the allies, the Western allies, are waiting to see some output now, some military decision on the basis of all the equipment that the Ukrainians have got. We still don't know if the Ukrainians are fully ready yet in terms of how they organise themselves properly. And I have to say, there are still some doubts as to whether Ukrainian commanders have still been able to shake off their old Soviet legacies. And so the, I, I get lots of reports of Ukrainian commanders who are still rather Soviet-minded, doing everything from the top down rather than, uh, as it were, questioning orders going up and down and, and, and using their initiative properly. And it's no surprise to see Russia seems to have stepped up its defensive actions. New analysis of satellite imagery reveals the scale of fortifications built up by Russian forces through the winter and the spring. Stu Ray is a former warrant officer in the Intelligence Corps, and he's been studying those images in his role as a senior analyst at McKenzie Intelligence Services. I asked him just how much of Russia's defensive network he's been able to see. We've been looking at the defences along the entire front line, so running from uh, the, the captured territory which the Ukrainians retook um, in their counteroffensive late last year, uh, somewhere from around the, the Kharkiv region, all the way down through Luhansk and the Donetsk Oblast into Zaporizhia uh, and of course down into Kherson. So we're looking at the defences across that front line and they're pretty extensive uh, the entire way, uh, entire way along that front line. Um, now, they, they've been trying to mount very limited uh, offensives in certain areas, mainly up to the north in the Kremina Svatovi line. Uh, clearly, Bakhmut has been a, a huge focus um, of uh, the Russian onslaught and offensive in, um, into the east of the country. And then down in the south, uh, we're seeing really more preparations for um, a, a real defence in depth uh, and possibly a fighting withdrawal. And are you able to compare it with the kind of defences they had six months ago? Yeah, it's very much uh, more enhanced than it has been before. And, and what we're seeing is the, the digging of the defences uh, further back. So probably preparations for a fighting withdrawal. Uh, so it, to me, looking at the, the imagery that we've been watching, it looks like the Russians either have um, some specific intelligence or, or they've conducted their, their combat estimates. And they're assessing that a, a Ukrainian thrust is likely to 
uh, pushed down into the Zappa Reach region to push to push south. And just how often do you look at this imagery? Is it on a daily basis? Can you see changes that that often? Um, we, we look at it um, as and when we're required to by uh, our clients. Our clients are, are, are quite varied. So we work from everything from um, for, for media such as yourselves um, and, and the insurance industry and, and the other security bodies. But we, we do have access to imagery all the time and we are looking at it um, quite frequently uh, and we are seeing the changes um, as they are, are, are being built or, or being prepared. Um, what, is, what is clear at the moment is while these defences are being prepared, we're not actually seeing um, uh, an increase in manpower or equipment or resources to actually populate those trenches or those defences. It's clearly this is a, a, a fighting withdrawal that they are preparing for. And how much does the insurance industry use the data that you're providing? To them, it's to just have an understanding of the the risk to or the exposure, the, the risk that they are holding in that area. So mainly it's infrastructural facilities such as power generation, uh, transport hubs, uh, that sort of thing, and it's just it's just so they can have an understanding and a clear appreciation of of the costs that they they may be faced with. And when you look at the defences that you can see, how difficult do they seem to overcome? They're they're, they're pretty good. They are um, some good defences there. Clearly, uh, the Russians, as as every is is aware, that the um, the Western uh, and particularly NATO nations have been supplying the the Ukrainians with some. Uh, pretty formidable battle-winning equipment, such as um, the, the Leopard 2 tank, the M1 Abrams and Challenger. So the defences that they're building are there clearly to put some pretty substantial obstacles in the way um, of those armoured fighting vehicles and, and, and the main battle tanks. So we're seeing the Dragon's Teeth, we're seeing the tank ditches, um, all put in, in, into layers to actually slow down, um, fix and hold the um, forces that are, are advancing in those areas. I guess the information is most useful to the Ukrainian forces if it reveals any surprises. Did anything surprise you? What really has been surprising to me overall during this conflict is the um, the, the operational and strategic naivety of the Russian forces. Uh, the Ukrainians are fighting a very well-planned, well-executed operation in, in this war, whereas the Russians seem to be just lurching from one failure to the next. You know, in, in my days in the intelligence corps, we were always um, sort of taught that the, the Russians would reinforce success uh, and leave failure to, to just flounder itself. It seems to me that in this conflict, whether it's due to political pressure or, or just sheer naivety and inexperience, they seem to be reinforcing failure, such as we've seen in Bakhmut. Stu Ray, great to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. And Mike, incursions have even been carried out in Russia this week by Russian fighters supporting the Ukrainian cause in the Belgorod region. Does this have the potential to escalate or is it just an embarrassment for Russia? Um, well, it's an embarrassment for Russia, but it may become a bigger embarrassment for Ukraine because they have more to lose from this, because this whole incursion um, reinforces the Kremlin's line that, look, it proves that the Ukrainians are trying to attack us. It proves that what we're fighting for in Ukraine is exactly what we say it is. Bunches of terrorists, Nazi-inspired terrorists, are invading our territory. Just look at what they've done in Belgorod. And these two groups, these um, few dozens of, of uh, fighters from the, um, it's the uh, Russian Volunteer Corps and the Freedom for Russia Legion, and I would describe them as selfie soldiers 
they spend a lot more time taking selfies than they do actual mm. soldiering. And a lot of them, mm. um, some of them we know have got neo-Nazi backgrounds. They, they come from the soccer hooligan element, which exists both in Russia and in Ukraine. They're not Ukrainians. They are Russians. They're all ethnic Russians. And they claim to be Russian partisans, but they also claim to be fighting with the International Legion in Ukraine. They say they're battalions. Well, I don't think they're battalions because there's certainly not 600 of them in each, yeah. uh, nothing like that. But they're groups, they're, they're groups. And I think they've, they've, this incursion was almost comical in its way, um, but the Russians will now craft their own narrative around it. And I really do think that you, that Kiev got to be very, very careful about this because it looks as if it looks as if they were somehow conniving at it, that they're somehow complicit. They've got a lot to lose here in terms of the support of Western powers who really don't like supporting the Russian narrative in this way. It's interesting. It's going to be very interesting to see how this develops. Thanks, Mike. Stay with us. Now, the RAF has just taken delivery of its 22nd and final A400M transport aircraft, a milestone in transformation of the Air Force. It replaces the Hercules, the C-130J, which has been a workhorse for Britain's armed forces for decades. The Herc has flown troops around Afghanistan and Iraq. It's been used in humanitarian relief missions and challenging evacuations where no proper runway is available available. But in a few weeks, the last of Britain's Hercules aircraft will be retired early. There's a problem though. While the A400M is more capable in many ways, it can't do some of the things the Hercules does, at least not yet. This is what the incoming Chief of the Air Staff, Air Marshal Sir Richard Knighton, told concerned MPs on the Commons Defence Committee. There's a gap from when the Hercules goes out of service to when the A400M picks up all of those capabilities and the niche issues that, that are that where the gap is is around uh, the airdrop and the kind of things that we can drop from from the aircraft well that airdrop capability from the hercules has included sas parachute missions and dropping boats for sbs missions the mps are worried the a400m simply can't do the same job as the hercules for britain's special forces ministers insist there's nothing to worry about so who should we believe? Well, let's bring in retired Major General Chip Chapman, whose career included commanding two para and 19 brigade. Uh, really good to speak to you today, Chip. What is it the A400M can't do at the moment that the Hercules can? Well, the, really, this comes into the rubric of aerial delivery. And for example, low-level parachuting was announced in April 23. What it can't do at the moment is to deliver uh, boats by air from um, C-130. Now, is that really a problem? It's low probability, it's potentially high impact, but if you look at this in terms of maritime counter-terrorism, both of the last two occasions that we've been involved in these things, the SBS have used RAF Merlins and Wildcats and Chinooks and things like that, and fast roped onto the objectives. So as I said, this is low probability, but potentially high impact. But there are other ways of doing things, and one of the things that special forces have been always good at doing is finding ways around this and also the ways to, around this are things like to, um, levering your diplomatic and defense network to fill the gaps while there is a gap so for example the belgians did this when the americans parachuted them into um, drc in uh, 1964 there are 10 to 12 c-130j's across the uh, channel used by the germans and the french and you could establish an interim uh, memorandum of understanding whilst the capability is being 
delivered. But what about uh, forces being British only for an operation? Well, you can share sovereignty at certain times, so I don't think that also matters. And we saw that really in both of the evacuation operations in Afghanistan and in Sudan, where nations often pool their sovereignty in getting the nationals of other nations out. Now, again, one of the things that people say the uh, the uh, A400 isn't as good at, at the C-130 is it's stopping distance in austere airstrips. That is absolutely correct, but it can carry more car cargo, longer ranges at faster speed. So there's always a trade-off in capability, but at the end of the day, I think the A400, 22nd delivered, as we know, the final one this week, is more capable and it is the aircraft of the future. That is not to say that the C-130 is in its uh, demise, it's not. I mean, there are uh, C-130s still on the production line, for example, New Zealand, they're buying some new ones now. So, so you're, you're accepting that the future and thinking that the impact will be little then? Yeah, it's low probability, but high impact, but I think there are other ways around this. And uh, there's always good ways of thinking that you can uh, come up with to get around this with your nations, other nations, and that's why we have allies to help fill the gaps when these things occur. And can you explain for the layman how the plane might not be usable for certain drops now, but will be later? Because to the untrained eye, you think, well, it's, it's got a hatch at the back, it opens, so what changes in a couple of years? Well, one of the problems has been the way that the, uh, the sort of downwash of the propellers happens, which can affect the sort of airflow in terms of the way either people come out, because that was the thing which caveated the low-level parachuting, people coming out of the port and starboard side might collide, or it might make the uh, the platform which comes out and the parachute which uh, deploys from it unstable or rip it to bits. So what you need to do is try and ensure that the airflow doesn't inhibit the initial seconds of the equipment or personnel coming out of the back or sides, back rear doors of the aircraft. And that's what the, the engineering and uh, drag problem really that they'll be seeking to solve in the next future months. And some of the concerns from MPs and commentators appear to be things that can't be changed. The MOD's own brochure for the Hercules planes is selling off. Describe it as the aircraft that goes where others can't, won't or don't. The A400M is always going to be heavier and noisier, isn't it? And that's a problem for the sort of stealth special forces need. Yeah, but again, the, the amount of times that they'll be going into those austere airstrips to do things is, is probably tiny. And the difference between the stopping speed of a and the capability and payload of the A400 uh, means that it's not necessarily, uh, doesn't mean that you need to retain the Hercules to do that. Now, what the big issue in a sense is the scene where STRATCOM and the RAF have met and ensuring that you have this strategy bridge between the two in terms of the capability that you wanted and the capability that you desire for the future. Now, Directorate Special Forces, of course, wanted the Hercules to um, carry on, uh, and indeed they wanted it to carry on until 2030. But yeah, we've crossed that Rubicon in terms of the integrated review, where uh, we always knew for the last two years that the Hercules was going to be taken out of service by 2023, and now we just know the date is the 30th of June. Is it a mistake to retire the Hercules early? Would we not be better off maybe with a slightly few A400s and keeping a few Hercs? Well, it's different thinking, different planes. If you have more fleets and you've got an aging fleet and a brand new fleet, there's different bills, both in terms of training the pilots, the engineering bills, all things which give you additional costs. So the fact that the Hercules is still going to be used by other nations, and indeed, as you mentioned, Kate, 
uh, people are interested in buying ours just means that there's different thinking for different planes just so happens that in terms of the integrated review the RAF thinking at the moment is that the future is both with the C-17 and the A-400 Atlas. How much of this is about saving money? Well, I don't think it is about saving money ultimately. And if the money is to be saved, it is the fact that newer aircraft, and there is, of course, a strategic uh, portion here in terms of the A-400 is a European-built aircraft. So there's something to do with the industrial base. But it is uh, more expensive to run on aging uh, aircraft with the spares that uh, would go towards that and then ha than having a new fleet which will ultimately be more efficient than an ageing uh, an aging fleet. Major General Chip Chapman, thank you so much for your time. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrep. Now, the story of a piece of military technology which has saved thousands of lives and which no one wants to have to use. The ejection seat, the very first developed in the 1940s, required the pilot to complete a series of tasks lasting around 30 seconds to successfully escape their aircraft and stand a chance of landing safely. Well, today, the combination of canopy removal, explosive detonation and parachute deployment are all done automatically in under three seconds. In some of the most high-tech fighter jets, the plane itself might even make the call to eject a pilot in mortal danger. A new book details the history of the ejection seat and tells the stories of the lives it saved and changed. The author of Eject, Eject is former RAF navigator John Nicholl, who has his own story of ejecting when his tornado bomber was shot down in 1991 during the first Gulf War. Our aircraft, myself, John Peter's aircraft, being hit by a missile, with the aircraft burning around us, there was a dawning realisation that this jet could explode within a nanosecond. And we said, right, let, we've got to get out, eject, eject, eject. And the first thing that happens is nothing. And that one hundredth of a second feels like a lifetime. And then the cockpit is blasted off on rockets going past your ears. And then the ejection seat fires. Your arms are dragged in on a straining straps. Your, your hot shoulder harness pulls you into the back of the seat. Your legs are dragged into restraining straps. And then as you rise up a bit further, the rockets in the pack ignite automatically and you accelerate from zero to kind of something like 150, 200 miles an hour upwards under 18 times the force of gravity in about half a second. And, you're and if you're flying along at let's say 600 miles an hour or 500 miles an hour, you're hit by a 600 mile an hour wind. Everything happens automatically. So you're not really aware of what's happening, but there's a fizzing and a buzzing and a tumbling. The seat stabilizes. And as soon as the seat stabilizes, and it cuts you free, basically. And as the seat falls away, your own personal parachute is withdrawn and you're then floating down. I remember watching the tornado, trailing smoke, dip down and impact the ground and explode. And I thought, and then I thought that ground's coming up really quickly now. But I just kind of tried to raise my legs up in the parachute, just, which is the worst thing that you can do. And so I just hit the ground kind of flat on my backside. And at that moment where you knew you were going to eject, did you have faith in the equipment? Did you think oh, yeah. you, were going, you knew you were going to land safely, did you? No, I mean... The, it's a curious one, and it's a question that I ask of loads of people whose stories I tell in the book. Because what you have to realize, Kate, is that the ejection seat sits in an aircraft for conceivably 5, 10, 15 years. It is taken out every now and then, and it's serviced. And I think every 10 or 15 years, they go back to Martin Baker, who make our seats, 
to be properly serviced. But for the most part, and you've seen some of this, you know, there's people jumping on it with muddy boots. There's kind of it's raining on it. It's being thrown around the sky at high G and high speed. And it just sits there for years and years and years until the moment that you pull the handle. And you just have to rely on the fact that it's been well built, well made, well designed and well serviced. And for 99.999% of occasions, it is and the system works as advertised. And John, your rejection sleep was a far cry from the original one developed in the 1940s. What was that one like? Well, so you, in your introduction, you talked about the first people to reject taking 30 cents. The first person to reject on a Martin Baker seat was Joe Lancaster, a former Lancaster World War II pilot who became a test pilot. They didn't understand ejection seats then. He thought he called it a dangerous damn contraption. <laughs> and he really regarded, they really regarded it with, I'm sitting on what is it in effect is a metal bucket seat full of explosives. But the air, his aircraft was going out of control. He said, if I want to see my wife and kid again, I'm going to have to eject. So he, his process, he had to first manually jettison the canopy. He then pulled his red, it was a red handle, pulled it down. And what in effect was a bomb in his seat went off, blasted him out of the aircraft. A tiny little parachute on the back of the seat then went out to help stabilize the seat. But that's, that was the ed, end of the automatic process. So Joe, who is now tumbling around through the air, I think it's three and a half thousand feet and about 300 miles an hour, he has to feel for his seat harness. Underneath his seat harness is his parachute harness. You've got to be really careful you don't get that wrong. So he has to press the seat harness, undo his straps, push the seat away. He's still flying through the air here and tumbling. He then has to find his own parachute harness again, find the D-ring, pull the D-ring to release his parachute. And it took him 30 seconds. And one of the really interesting things about the story is how the first female IF fast jet pilot stuffed books in her yep. flying suit to add weight and reduce the risk of ejection injury because they were all designed for heavier men. So we're talking about the late 80s, the early 90s, when the first females were rightly, after many years, allowed to start training to fly fast jets. All of the equipment was made for men. But it's completely different now, rightly so, and thank the Lord, that the most modern seats adapt to the weight of the person. They're fully computerized. And indeed, the most modern seat now is so computerized, so linked into, digitally linked into the, the jet itself, that if the seat thinks that the pilot faces mortal danger, it will eject the pilot without further reference. And I wanted to ask you, John, what do you think about that? Do you like the idea? Do you like it? Well, I mean, again, I think I would be, I would go back to the first uh, ejectees who were really suspicious of the ejection seats. And I would imagine that people now think, hold on, this thing can just shoot me out. But the simple fact is it can save your life. It's not going to do it in every circumstance, just a couple. And so, yes, I think that if I was flying the most modern jet, I would want the most modern seat that gave you that second chance at life, because that's what these things do. They're giving you a second chance at life. 
Former RAF navigator John Nickel on his new book, Eject, Eject, which is out today. And that is just a fraction of our conversation. He has so many different stories, as you can imagine, of ejections and how they change people's lives, plus how he felt seeing his name among the thousands of lives saved on the wall of the factory where the seats are made. You can hear the whole thing in an extra edition of the SITREP podcast. It's online now. Uh, Mike, um, You'd never have thought that a history of the ejector seat threw up so many interesting stories. Oh, yes. <clears throat> and, I, and Martin Baker, the company that make them, are exactly right. They've saved an awful lot of lives. But, you know, I mean, it, it, being in an ejector seat, as John Nicker was saying there, it's a fundamentally dangerous thing. I mean, a lot of people are injured by the ejector seats, back injuries, because of the acceleration. A lot of people have got, and I know some pilots and navigators who have been walking around with back injuries ever since, some quite serious. But the argument is, however much the eject ejection process might injure you, that's infinitely better than going down with your aircraft because there is absolutely mm. no survival from that ever <clears throat> in a jet aircraft. And so they, they do really, you know, they really do work. And they're one of those things that are now fundamental to air combat. And it's very interesting what he was saying. The, you know, the fully automated version is just in tune really with modern aircraft. And in a way, the pilot is <clears throat> in some respects the, the not, not the least important thing in the aircraft, but it's the pilot is the thing that if you didn't have a pilot, you wouldn't have those problems. If you could do it all with robotics, it wouldn't matter. But of course, for certain things, you have to have a pilot in the aircraft. But it, it does indicate how we are moving in air power more and more in the direction of, of fully autonomous robotics. And that's part mm. of the trend that I think pilots have got to, as it were, come to terms with. And Mike, I'll let you into a little secret. Um, he told me just before that interview, or in the extended version, that um, a few days before we chatted, he actually fell down the stairs and exacerbated the injuries he had when he came out of that that plane all those years ago. It just goes oh, to show you. That makes just sense. goes to show. Yeah. I don't know anybody who has who has ejected without feeling something. You know, without some sort of effect. Um, and even the most recent one I know, uh, he banged his shoulder and uh, dislocated something, terrible headaches for a while. And that was pretty mild. And that was um, mm. from a, the, uh, the, the aircraft that fell off the Queen Elizabeth. Mike, always good to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. And my thanks to all of our guests. That is all for now. We'll be back with another SIT rep next Thursday. And if you want to listen online, you can now find us on the Forces News YouTube channel, as well as our home at bfbs.com slash SIT rep or wherever you download your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye bye. Mm -hmm.